0: Let's open our Bibles tonight to 2nd Chronicles. We're going to be looking at uh, chapters uh, 12 and 13, Lord willing, and we'll take communion tonight together. Looking forward to that. We've been looking at the the son of Solomon, his name is Rehoboam. And we see at the end of Solomon's life that the, the, the kingdom of Israel had divided really into two different parts. Uh, Jeroboam taking the the northern ten tribes and Judah, uh, and, and specifically Rehoboam taking the southern two tribes. And these two kings, Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam in the south. And Rehoboam, if you remember, was Solomon's son, his physical son. And Jeroboam was really just a servant of Solomon's at the time, and now the kingdom is divided, and, and, and now they're uh, at, as soon as the kingdom breaks apart, and we saw the beginning of that last week, what we see here is now Rehoboam in, in chapter 11, he begins to fortify the cities, in, in Judah, and not so much, and certainly it would include foreign invaders, but now he's really ramping it up because not only does he have foreign invaders that might come in and try to sack Jerusalem, but he's also concerned about his brothers in the north, who now they are at odds with one another, they're, they're enemies of one another, and Judah, at least, because Judah. Uh, the capital of Judah is really Jerusalem, and Jerusalem lies right on the border of Benjamin and and uh, Judah, and and so, uh, you know they 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 so Rehoboam's desire obviously is to protect that um, and and protect them from their northern brothers and. And what a sad thing, really, when you see stuff like that. People who used to be united are no longer united. They're, they're enemies with one another. And so we saw that. And so now, in um, and, and Rehoboam, it says in uh, verse uh, 21 of chapter 11, he began to take uh, multiple wives, just like he learned from his father Solomon. So he takes 18 wives and 60 concubines. And he has 28 sons and 60 daughters. So, like father, like son, unfortunately. And we're going to see as we go throughout Rehoboam's uh, life here in his reign, it, it's not going to end well. And in fact, it started off for maybe a couple of years. Uh, it looked promising, but then it quickly takes a nosedive and a very unfortunate thing, which brings us to. Uh, chapter twelve. And if I had to give a title to tonight's message, there's some things in it that we can pull out from it. And I think probably the, the biggest one is the Lord giving grace to the humble. You know, the Lord give, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. I like that. <laughs> Don't you? So often we see the world and people in the world spouting and telling us what they're going to do, and it never really ends well with them, and, and, and they're always attacked. And, and even those who have humble hearts, you know, the, the Lord seems to raise them up, and he takes the, the proud and he brings them low, but he takes the humble heart. The, that person who is very little in their sight, like David, God loved to exalt David because David was little in his own eyes. He was the smallest of his brothers. He had seven other brothers, and he was the eighth. And he was the youngest. And very small in his own sight. And God says, that's the one I can use. Because he's already got a humble heart. Humility is already there. And God likes to use people who are humble And uh, he tends to shelve those who think they're the the, the man or woman of the hour, those who think that they're high and mighty, those who think that they've got it all together. They've got all the schooling, all the pedigrees, all the stuff. And and God doesn't use, even the Bible says that he doesn't use many mighty. He uses the things, the base things of the world, the things that nobody wants, the the outcasts, the scourings of the earth. He likes to use those things because they're already in a humbled state, and he loves to lift them up. And he likes to bring the high and lofty and the high and mighty down. And we see such a great example of that in Jesus, our Savior, don't we? Who had every reason to be high and mighty because he is. We sang tonight, great and mighty, Lord, you're holy. He is the only one who is worthy to be, uh, to be exalted because he's perfect in all of his ways. He, he deserves all things. He made all things. And by uh, as, as creator, he has the right for those created things to respond to him in thanksgiving and in love and, and and obedience. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. But he came as a humble servant, Jesus. When he could have come, like he's going to come back in the at the end of the tribulation period, he's coming back as a mighty warrior. Not the meek little Jesus, the, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. No, when he comes back in his second coming, he's coming as the lion, and he's coming for vengeance. And it's not going to be a pretty sight. And so, But I love the fact that he has these, both of these characters about him. He's the most loving, and the most gentle, and the most caring. He could take the most fragile thing and hold it, and yet he can crush an entire kingdom with just a word. And he will he 's going to crush all kingdoms when he comes back in his second coming. Can I get a hallelujah? Yes, I, I, I like that because uh, there 's nothing in this world that I see that 's doing going very well so anyway let 's get into chapter twelve here and Uh, Notice in verse one, it says, now it came to pass when Rehoboam had established and had the kingdom and had strengthened himself that he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel along with him. And and there's about three years that he was really kind of keeping things uh, the way they were under his father, Solomon. And then something happens after three years, and we're going to see why that is here in just a few seconds. Because notice in verse two, it says, and it happened. In the fifth year, so uh, the third year, up to the third year, he was doing just fine, uh, doing well. And it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam. This would be uh, 925 B.C., that Shishak, king of Egypt, and he uh, ruled from 935 to 914 B.C. He was the founder of Egypt's 22nd dynasty. But it says that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem, and here's the reason he came up to Jerusalem. Remember, it's in the fifth year. He came up because, if you have your Bible, underline this, because they, Judah, had transgressed against the Lord, against Jehovah. And that's the reason. So three years, they were doing this fine, and somewhere after the third year, he began to slip, and began to slip into idolatry, just like the northern ten tribes had started their their kingdom engrossed in idolatry, and now it's infecting now the southern two tribes. So this account of Egypt attacking Jerusalem, believe it or not, it's engraved on the wall of the Temple of Ammon at Karnak in Egypt. And there is a... Um, Okay, (laughs) You you can see, uh, if you were looking at a map of Egypt, uh, Karnak would be along the Nile River in the southeastern part of uh, Egypt. It it, it looks uh, very similar to what you see up here on the screen. And on the walls, don't know exactly which wall, but these are some of the walls of that uh, ruins. And in the walls of that, it, it it tells us that that's exactly what uh, Shishak did, and he bragged about it in um, on on these walls. Now, Second Chronicles here it doesn't tell us exactly what the, their transgressions were, meaning the transgressions of Judah. I kind of told you already, but there's no mention of it in here in Chronicles, and the reason for that is because First uh, Kings. Uh, does tell us, because remember, kings and chronicles, they're, they're kind of parallels uh, to one another. One has a little bit more information than another, and they're, 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 the scope of these two different books is a little bit different, as we've already talked at length. But in First uh, Kings chapter 14, it tells us, uh, in First Kings 14 it says in verse 22, now, uh, and this is why this king Shishak came from Egypt to sack Jerusalem. Here's the reason. It says in 1 Kings 14, verse 22, Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him, speaking of God, to jealousy with their sins, which they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they had also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also perverted persons in the land. And yes, these were temple prostitutes, male and female prostitutes. There'd be men that would give themselves to other men. You think that's something new in New York? No, it's been going on for a long time. But they would they would do this in, and that's how they would worship their false gods. That's their worship. And there were also perverted persons in the land, and that's literally what it means. And they did according to all the abominations of the nation which the Lord had cast out of um, before the children of Israel. And it happened in the fifth year. And that's where we pick up right here that King Shishak of Egypt came up against Jerusalem and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away the gold shields which Solomon had made and then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place, committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And notice that this, in verse 2, this is the reason that Shishak, king of Egypt, had come against Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It was because they had transgressed against the Lord in their idolatry and in their perversion. And I have to bring this into, I really didn't think about this until just now, but it's very appropriate. When I think about America, America has never been the, the, a perfect nation. There's been no perfect nation, but it started off well and now today we are loaded with perversion. All around us, we have uh, the LGBTQ uh, folks and, uh, coming into the schools and reading stories to young kids here in Penfield, and we see all of this lewdness and all of this complete insanity. And some people say, well, God is going to judge America, and I say, God is already judging America. You don't have to agree with me. I think that is the judgment. We're seeing it. Our country's falling apart, folks. We need to be in prayer for it. And it's really no different. Think of it. The idolatry and the perversion on the level that we're seeing now. It is unprecedented. And whenever Jesus, whenever the Lord was going to be doing something great, there was always great demonic activity. Before His first advent, there was demonic activity. Before the flood, there was great demonic activity. And the Lord tells us himself that before he returns to the earth, and even before the rapture, we're going to see uh, uh, untold horrors and atrocities and lawlessness and injustice. It's only going to get worse. I hate to break anybody's heart here tonight, but if we have any reprieve at all, it's only going to be for a short time. But notice that Shishak came with 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen, verse 3, and people without number who came with him out of Egypt the Lubim and the Shukim and the Ethiopians. So the Lubim were a people of northwest Africa, and the Shukim are. Booth dwellers is literally what they're called. They were people who supplied warriors to Egypt. So it seems that these people were more like mercenaries or mercenary brokers for Egypt. And notice in verse 4, And he took the fortified cities of Judah. And that's what a king would do. He would pick off the small cities, even though they're fortified. They were easier to attack. He would attack those first, and then he'd come up to the motherlode. He would come up then, finally, to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 4, and he took the fortified cities of Judah and then came to Jerusalem. And then Shemaiah, the prophet, came to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah who were gathered together in Jerusalem because of Shishak. And this is what he said to them. He says, thus says the Lord, whenever you have a prophet in these days coming up and speaking to the king, the king ought to be trembling. Because usually when a prophet comes, it's not to say, hey, you're doing a great job, man. Things are going great. You know, do you need any help? No, it's usually, you're messing up really bad. And unless you straighten up, I'm bringing judgment. And and there may be encouragement, but more, more often than not, there is great warning. And sometimes impending judgment. So Shemaiah says to Rehoboam, thus says the Lord, you have forsaken me. And therefore, I have left you in the hand of Shishak. Now, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? You've forsaken me, and therefore, I'm going to forsake you. What it tells you know, so there is a consequence uh, for rebellion and disobedience, right? In Galatians 6, verse 7, it has this, a verse that we know very well Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, and obviously, speaking of an agrarian kind of a society, whatever a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. And the Lord would say a similar thing to Asa. We haven't talked about Asa yet because he is going to come after, uh, he is Rehoboam's grandson and a future king of Judah. He reigned uh, from 911 until 870 BC. He was the first reformer king of Judah because we had you know Saul and then uh, David and then Solomon and then Rehoboam and then Abijam. Or Abijah, and then finally Asa. And Asa would be the first reformer king in Judah. But because of of the idolatry of Asa's father, Abijah, and we will run into him after we get through Rehoboam's life. God had a prophet speak this to Asa, this reformer king. God would say this to him in 2 Chronicles 15. He would say to him, it says, Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa. And he said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Benjamin and Judah. He says, The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him... He will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Notice the conditional promise there. If you forsake him, he's going to forsake you. But if you seek him, then he will be found of you. He says, for a long time, Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him, and he was found by them. And in those times there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in, but great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the lands. So nation was destroyed by nation, city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. But you be strong. And do not let your hands be weak. And now he's saying this to Asa because his father, Abijah, was an idolatrous man. And so now things are getting so bad that God is going to speak to Asa and tell him to be strong. And do not let your hands be weak, for your work will, shall be rewarded. And when Asa heard these words in the prophecy of Oded, the prophet, he took courage. And notice what he did. He removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had taken in the mountains of Ephraim. And he restored the altar of the Lord that was before the vestibule of the Lord. And so you hear um, this this wonderful young man. um, And and, 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 and we do reap what we sow. So verse 6, back in our text, it says, so the leaders of Israel and the king, notice what they do. Miracle of miracles. (laughs) So the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves. I'd love to see that in our country today. All the leaders, that they would humble themselves. And they said, the Lord is righteous. After they heard these things, that God was going to bring Shishak, they humbled themselves. And what does it tell us in James 4, verse 6? That God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble and humility. You know, this is a proper response when God brings chastening to anyone. You know, many people resist the chastening and they, of God and they continue to make excuses and they continue, unfortunately, to make even poorer decisions. And they get themselves into an even greater mess. And so the best thing to do when you mess up is own it. When you mess up, when you sin, own it, confess your sin to God, ask him for forgiveness, receive that forgiveness based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and then learn from what you've done and then turn from it and continue walking with the Lord. Don't sit there and wallow in your pity of how you've blown it. You confess it, you get up, and you keep walking. And when Jesus says that he forgives us, like it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a great and wonderful thing. And the more I, I can apprehend, I don't know if that's the right word or not, but the more we can comprehend or apprehend that truth, we'll be honoring God even the more. Can you imagine confessing your sin and then walking? Away from it, knowing that you've been forgiven. And instead of whipping yourself for three days because of you messed up, and then you walk away from that going, God, I'm so glad that you've forgiven me. And you'll never recall that sin again. And you can almost hear the Spirit of God saying, now go and sin no more. Isn't that what he told the woman who was caught in adultery? How great is that? I mean, that's the truth of it. And, and the more we grasp that and can do that, we bring honor to him because we're putting our faith in his ability to forgive and to um, absolve us of our sin. And when we can do that, we honor him. Do you know that? It, it may seem a little cocky to somebody else. Well, you can't just do that and then ask God to forgive you and then act like it didn't happen. Well, there may, you may not forget for a while, but you know what? You can. <laughs> you can walk Away from that as if you hadn't done it, because that's the way God sees it. But we don't tend to do that. We tend to beat ourselves up over it and wallow around for three or four days. Has anybody done that here? Raise your hand if you've sinned and then you, you know, for a few days you just kind of are like down in the dumps, and you like, you know, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go to I'm not gonna go to Dunkin' Donuts because I don't deserve it. Lord, I sinned the other day, and I just—I'm gonna—I'm just gonna get up my personal bag of my my cat of nine tails, my personal flagellum, and I'm just gonna—I'm just gonna whip myself until I feel better. And then what are you doing? You're atoning for your sin instead of God. Blasphemous. Trust Him, right? James four verse ten says, "Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up." And that's exactly what the King and His His cabinet did. Now, when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, notice God sees this. It wasn't hidden from him. The word of the Lord came to Shemaiah saying, they have humbled themselves. Therefore, I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. My wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Do you hear what God is saying? Because they humbled themselves, God was and could have brought Shishak, king of Egypt, against Jerusalem to just completely destroy it. He did it with the Babylonians a few hundred years later, but he waited. This wasn't going to be the time. And why? Because the king humbled himself. There's something irresistible to God, I believe, about a man or a woman who humbles themselves, truly humbles themselves, and realizes, man, I have really stepped in at this time. And I am so sorry, God. And there's genuine repentance. It's not just crocodile tears. It's not worldly repentance. It's a deep sorrow and a changing of heart. And when God sees that, it's almost like it's irresistible to him. It's like he's got to run to you and say, Oh, my son or my daughter, lift up your head. I forgive you. Now go. Get back out there and get at it again. Right? And see, that is what changes us. There's no one like that in all the earth. Do you know of anybody like that? I don't know of anybody that when I, you know, think about this, young teen, young teenage person, your dad buys a brand new Jeep Wagoneer. It's it's white like mine, and it's, it's, I don't have a Jeep Wagoneer, but, but that would be really nice. But no, but... You, you have, your dad has this Jeep Wagoneer. He spent 90 grand on it, and you, being a teenager, and you just got your license, and your dad doesn't know it, but you take it out for a spin when he's sleeping at night, thinking, I'll just go around the block, and I'll bring. he'll never know. And you get into this major accident. Smash up his idol, right? And then for him to walk up to you, when you're expecting him to bring out a flamethrower He comes up to you, and he can see—he sees the pain racked on your face, of the horror of what you're going to do, and he grabs you and he hugs you and he cries with you, and he says, "It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay." You know, that's the kind of grace that God loves to do when you've really blown it. There may be consequences, but He loves you. You know, never forget that. So when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, uh, he, he said that he wouldn't uh, destroy them, but give them notice, underline this in your Bible, some deliverance. <laughs> Important to underline that. My wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. And so um, it's always good to cry uncle instead of resisting God. Don't resist God. When he brings chastening in your life, take it and, 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 and understand that's what it is. And don't try to sidestep it. Just accept it and be humbled and learn from it and accept it and let him do what he's going to want and then just love him for it. See, if they humbled themselves, there would be less pain. If they had done that in the beginning, there would be less pain. If they resisted in their pride and arrogance, it would have been disastrous. Think of what God would have put in the heart of Shishak, king of Egypt, had the king of Rehoboam, king Rehoboam, had he stubbornly stood up and says, we're going to fight it out and we're going to do what we can and, you know, forget you, God. If they'd have done that, I'm sure he would have scraped them like a dish. But here the Lord is being faithful to a promise that he had already given to Israel. You know what promise that was? So these men they 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 humble themselves, and it's one that we know very well. It's Second Chronicles seven verse uh, fourteen: "If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, that's exactly what this king is doing. And yet God knew Rehoboam's heart; He knew that just he knew what a rascal this guy was. But He gave him so much grace." And think about how much grace has God, God has given you, even though he knows everything about you. He knows everything about me, and he's extended so much grace, knowing very well what's going to happen two weeks from now or a month from now, where I'm really going to blow it or something like that. He knows that. I don't even know that. And yet today, he loves me. And see, that is the one thing that just kills me inside in a wonderful way, because it just makes me go, man, Lord. That's why Peter would say, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. But the Lord showed grace and mercy to Ahab, king of Israel. So the northern ten tribes, the king, about 57 years later from where we're talking about now, just as he did with Abijah, king of Judah. Remember, Ahab was one of the worst kings that Israel had ever had. Remember, his wife's name was Jezebel, and she's the one who sent men out to kill Elijah after he had killed the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It tells us that in 1 Kings 18, but but look what it says in 1 Kings 21 concerning Ahab. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Notice in 1 Kings 21 what it says. Verse 17, it says, again, 57 years later in, in the northern ten tribes, King Ahab, this is what it said about him. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise and go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. And there he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. And so Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, He says, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity upon you, I will take away your posterity, Ahab. God, speaking to the prophet, says, I will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the houses of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. But there was no one like Ahab, it tells us here, who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel his wife stirred him up, and he behaved very abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And here it is, verse 27, and so it was. So he hears all of this bad news from Elijah that the Lord had given to him. (laughs) Goose is cooked, basically. And so it was, when Ahab heard these words, that he tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his body, fasted and lay in sackcloth, went about mourning, mourning, speaking of crying out. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of a son, I will bring the calamity on his house. Can you see how gracious God is? Even to the northern ten tribes, That the king Ahab, one of the worst kings that ever was in Israel. He cried out, he was broken, the humility of the man And God didn't just wipe him off the map. He saw what was there. And he worked with that little flame that was in Ahab's heart. And he said, you humble yourself before me and I will make things better for you. But if you resist me, there's going to be trouble. And Ahab did ultimately resist God. And he paid the price. He and his wife. Unfortunately, Now, about 200 years later from that, the Lord would also do a similar thing in the life of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Hezekiah ruled from 715 to 686 B.C., and notice what it says in 2 Kings 20, verse 1 through 11. It says, In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, you're going to die and not live. Well, thank you. Thank you, Isaiah. That's a very kind message. You you could have just texted it to me. You didn't have to make a personal visit. You could have just, you know, you're going to die. Get yourself in order. Thanks. That's really nice. And that's what God said (laughs) plain as day. Then he turned his face, Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall while he lay in bed and he prayed to the Lord. Saying, remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart. And I've done what was good in your sight. And it's true, Hezekiah was a good king. It wasn't like God was just punishing him. He wasn't a perfect man, but he, he was a good king. He was a, he was a very good king. But Ahaz, or Hezekiah, excuse me, wept bitterly, and it happened before. So as Elijah comes and gives the message, hey, get your house in order, you're going to die. See ya. <laughs> and so he's leaving the palace, and he gets out in the middle court as he's leaving that the word of the Lord came to uh, uh, Elijah, or I'm sorry, um, Isaiah, excuse me. And he says, return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayer and I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you and on the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord and I will add to your days 15 years. What grace. He was on his deathbed. Evidently had some kind of issue with boils that, would, that could have taken his life. And so then Isaiah I'm sorry, it says, and I will add to your days 15 years and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, who was their nemesis at that time. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Do you see why God did it? Because he made promises to David that they would never cease to be a man as long as they were obedient to God. They would not cease to be a man seated on the throne of David. And God is gonna keep that promise regardless who whoever's on the throne. He did this for his his own namesake and for David, his servant. David made big mistakes, but David was a wonderful man. He didn't have a problem with idolatry. He wasn't an idolater. He slipped up in lust and uh, he murdered you know, Bathsheba's wife or husband. But idolatry wasn't his thing. But he broke and he was never the same again but he walked in deeper waters with God and he kept close to God and he learned something from his experience and he gave us some of the most beautiful psalms that many have read and have been comforted by so then isaiah said take a lump of figs so they took And laid it on the boil and he recovered. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what is the sign that the Lord will heal me that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? And then Isaiah gave him a sign. And and we won't go into the sign. But the Lord made uh, the the sundial or the sun go back uh, a a few degrees. And and that was quite a miracle. And even astrologers and astronomers, these people who study this stuff, they know that back at that time something really unique happened. And it's kind of interesting because God can do anything. He made it, right? He can go, ah, I'm just going to hold that for just a little bit and then I'll let it go again. Continue. <laughs> and that's exactly what He did. Is that God's grace? Because He humbled Himself. He humbled Himself. God is gracious and merciful. I love what it says in Matthew and the Beatitudes. Jesus speaking in Matthew 5, verse 43, says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, because bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust? Oh, Lord, that's just not fair. Why would you send rain on somebody who is so evil? You know, we get so uptight when we see some evil person coming to Christ. I think it's the most glorious thing that ever happened. Or it's usually harder when they're still maintain, maintaining their evil status, and yet they seem to be blessed. And In fact, the one of the... Um, uh, Psalmist really struggled with that. Psalm seventy-three, I think it is. He goes, you know, I, I, they're, they're, everything is good for them. Their, their eyes are bulging out with fatness because they've got everything going for them. Their family's really big. Everything, the money is rolling in. The bank's fat. Everything, all the food and all. Oh, oh, he's got everything, right? He's got the Rolls Royce and the Bugatti and everything, and, and nothing is happening to this guy, right? And then, you know, the the, the prophet or the, the the psalmist, he says. He says, I almost left. I almost forget, just forget everything until he went into the house of God. And then he understood their end. God had to bring him around and say, hey, don't be looking at all that stuff. Because if that's all they got, think of this. If that's all they have on this earth, think of how fleeting money is. You could be a billionaire and have everything you want, but if you don't come to Christ, enjoy it to the fullest because in 60 or 70 years, your life is going to expire and all that wealth is going to go to someone else. But you will spend an eternity in hell. See, God doesn't want that person to go to hell. He wants them to come to him. See, we're so short-sighted about heaven and hell and eternity and here and now. We need to get with the program because I'm thinking about, and this is what I thought about when I was 24 years old, I'm thinking to myself, you know, even if I got my way for the rest of my life and I was fat and healthy and wealthy and everything else, that's nothing in comparison to eternity. What does it tell us in the Bible? Our, our life is like a vapor. It's here for a minute and it's gone and it's, our time here is so short, it's almost like in comparison to eternity, it's almost like it really never happened. But notice in verse 7, when the Lord saw that he humbled themselves, that he gave them some deliverance. Some deliverance. Notice the Lord wasn't going to get them completely off the hook, but he was going to give them some deliverance. And I love this about the Lord, that he knows exactly how much grace to give for the moment at hand because he knew their hearts. He knows how to throttle his chastening so that it's perfect and it's right. And God would use the nations around Israel as a chastening tool when Israel was going in astray. And it's unfortunate, but we, um, we often need to taste the bitterness of our bad choices or our sin in order for us to learn and to be obedient. Does anybody here learn the first time? You know, your parents tell you to do something because it's right and you're like, okay, I'll do that. And you just, you know, and then your parents like, he's such an obedient kid. He's, you know, he does everything right. Is that usually the case? No, it's usually not the case. I rarely learn from apart from suffering. When things are going well, I I don't learn much, but when I go through pain, I'm listening very closely. When I'm going through pain, this just me personally, I'll confess to things I haven't even done. Just to, just to cover my bases in case, Lord, did I miss something? Yes, I did. I robbed the bank in 72. I, I was only three years old, but I did it. I did it. I, I confess it. You know, because I don't I'm just like, I'll do anything, Lord. I just want this pain to go away. Do what you want to do. Help me to, you know, fall flat on your face and inhale dust, whatever I got to do. Just, but it seems that it's the hard knocks that I learned from rather than the good days or the soft landings. I only learn from the hard ways. It's kind of unfortunate, but I know that's true about you, too. We all typically don't learn unless we go through something hard. I love what it says in Hebrews. It says that, speaking of Jesus, it says that he even learned obedience by the things that he suffered. That's kind of hard to understand, and there's some mental gymnastics there, but yes, he is God, and yes, he is the Son of Man. And as the Son of Man, he suffered. He he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. In Philippians, it tells us that being found in appearance as a man, he, Jesus, the Son of God, God Almighty in the flesh, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So, verse 8, nevertheless... He's going to give them some deliverance. He's going to keep them from being destroyed. But nevertheless, they will be his servants. They're going to be, the Judah is going to be Shishak's servants. And here's the reason why. That they may distinguish my service, which was really good and very comfortable and very nice and gracious, from the service of the kingdoms of the nations. The way God treats you and the way man treats you are very different. That's why David, when he made that mistake of numbering the people, and the prophet Nathan gave him three choices. And you, you know, he says, do you, you know, He gave him these three choices. And, and David says, Let me fall into the hand of God because I know that he is merciful and God chose for him. And it was over quick. And God knew exactly what David needed. He knew exactly the throttle he needed to, the pressure he needed to put on David's nerves to get him to repent and to to humble himself. And so Shishak, king of Egypt, verse 9, came up against Jerusalem, took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took everything, he carried everything away, the gold shields which Solomon had made, And then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And and notice that the shields that Solomon had made were made of gold. And now that those have been taken away by the king of Egypt, now they're replacing them with a much less superior, a more inferior metal like bronze. I mean, they even bypassed silver. It went from gold, bypassed silver, right to bronze. And so what's the point of all that? The the point is, is that that's the result of sin and rebellion. Decay, decay, and loss, and loss. And that's what happens. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the the guard would go and bring them out, and they would take them back into the guardroom. And notice in verse 12, here's another Condition. When he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as not to destroy him completely, and things also went well with Judah. (laughs) Do you see that condition? If you have your Bible there uh, in verse 12, underline when he humbled himself. Because there's a condition there, isn't it? When he did this, then God did this. And that's all God wanted. Because God knows what's best for us. And when we, when we, when we sin, not only is it a, a it, it, it may taste good for a moment. And the Bible does say that pleasure or sin is pleasurable for a season. But then the bill comes due that you can't pay. There's always bitter gravel and horrible things at the end of sin. It, it's never like what the devil tells you he tells you it looks great you know that's why all those drinking commercials you know like on the super bowl on sunday uh, every commercial is going to be you know bud light and everyone's having a good time and the girls in the skirts and the guys and they're all drinking beer and it looks like everybody's having a good time they don't they don't tell you what happened the next day they don't tell you about all that happened that night and how all the things that had happened in the night where they made total fools of themselves They don't want to tell you that because the devil says, oh, this is a great time. But when he humbled himself, God was so there. And I love that about God. Don't you love that about God? He he knows me. He knows the right amount of pressure to put on me. Just enough to get Rob to wake up. And he doesn't take much for me. But when he humbled himself, then the wrath of God turned from him, and things also went well in Judah. Wow. So that kind of makes me want to humble myself, right? To not think of myself as something great and wonderful. But really, I'm, you and I are wonderful in God's sight. And that's all I need. I don't care if I get any accolades, accolades from the world. You know, they can keep their rewards. They can keep their dove awards. They can keep all of their rewards. You can have it all. What's the song we used to sing? You can have all of this world, but give me Jesus. Because he is the one I'm ultimately going to face. He's the one I'm going to stand before and he's going to say, "Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord." I'm not going to hear that from anybody else on the planet. So I could care less about kings or anybody else in this world. I could care less about the, the dean of the school of music or the school of this or the school of that. I don't care how many PhDs and initials they have after the name. I'm not going to stand before you. I'm going to stand before a holy God whom you are going to stand before and give an account. And hopefully you are in Christ. Amen. I really don't care. I want to be right with God. I want to be right with Jesus. I want him to smile upon me. And I want to be a lover of God and a lover of people. Loving God is fairly easy. Because he's never disappointed me. He's perfect in all of his ways. Even though he may bruise me. He may allow me to go through something really difficult, but boy, and I have, and you have too. You've been through things, and God has allowed you to be bruised, and it was for your own good, and you didn't know it until later on in life, and you look back like I did, and I'm thinking, I'm so glad, Lord, you didn't allow me to get away with that because now I'm a completely changed person, and you knew exactly the pressure points to press, and you knew how long I had to be writhing in pain before I'd finally say uncle and humble myself. And then the wrath of God turned from him. And things went also well in Judah. So, verse 13. We're almost done here with this, and then we'll take communion together. Notice, thus King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and he reigned. Now, Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. So he reigned from 930 B.C. to 913 B.C. And he, he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And it tells us that his mother's name was Naamah. She was an Ammonitess. She was from uh, uh, the, tri- or the, the family of Ammon. Remember who Ammon was? It was the, the son of Lot and his daughter, remember? His illegitimate uh, son, um, Ammon and Moab, remember? In Genesis 19, 20, Genesis 20, somewhere there. But notice, he, Rehoboam, he did evil, verse 14, and here's the reason why. Because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. There it is. He did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. The word prepare here in the original language in the Hebrew, it literally means to set up or to establish or to fix or to make ready. He never, he, didn't, he did not fix his heart. He didn't establish it. He didn't make it ready to seek the Lord his God. So how important is it to prepare your heart to seek the Lord like we're going to do before we take communion here? We prepare our hearts. And how, do, how does one prepare their heart? Well, you simply pray to God and you say, Lord, all the things that I've done up to this moment, anything, even today, I can't even itemize and list for you the, the, the evil thought or whatever it may have been, an evil, uh, unkind word maybe I said to someone Whatever it is, you don't have to itemize it. If you remember, praise the Lord, then you can ask him to forgive you. And just come to the table tonight clean because of the blood of Christ. Only the blood of Christ can make you clean. And that's why we, Jesus told us to celebrate as often as we do, to do this in remembrance of him, of what he did on the cross at Calvary, right? So notice um, that it didn't come by chance, this idea of preparing your heart. He didn't prepare his heart, that's why he did evil. It didn't come by chance or osmosis, but it was a deliberate act of the will. Isn't that what it is? To prepare your heart means you are doing something deliberately. It's a deliberate act of the will. It's not like I'm just kind of going through life and I just happen to do it. No, it's deliberate. If you don't seek the Lord, you will only be inclined to do evil things, not godly things. I believe that when there is idleness and a void of God in a person's life, that the vacuum that is in the heart will be filled with worldliness. It just happens automatically. It's almost like a default Without God, the default is evil. And you may not be doing something or thinking something really atrocious, but nonetheless, you are in the grip of your adversary. Not possessed necessarily by a demon, although perhaps some people can be, but it could be just you're under Satan's influence. There are a lot of people today that aren't possessed by a demon, but they are certainly influenced by a demon, and you might not think much of it. You might say, well, big deal. So what are you going to do? What decision are you going to make? Are you just going to kind of see how it goes? Just kind of live life? Just kind of going through it without purpose, without anything deliberate or intentional? No, we have to live lives. of. It's like a man loving his wife. You know, you've been married for... 13, 10, 12, 13 years or more. The honeymoon is over in a sense. And yet you deliberately choose to stop by the store and you get her some flowers. Or when she's made dinner, this great meal for you guys. And then at night, you know, your M.O. is to go in and sit in your lazy boy recliner while she does dishes too. And then for you to say, no, honey, I'm going to do them. It's a deliberate act of the will. It's not just kind of you know, blasé, just whatever happens. No, there's a deliberate act of the will. And that's what love is too, isn't it? It's a deliberate act of the will. See, that's what's wrong with a lot of marriages today because they take each other for granted. And after a while, they forget the love that they really have because love is a choice. Love is a choice. Love is an act, a, a deliberate act. And especially when you don't necessarily feel it. I would encourage you to do something, guys, and ladies do the same thing, but especially for the men. You know, if you're married and you, sometime, stop thinking, stop letting your feelings lead you to do something as an act of love, a deliberate act of the will. Do something deliberate, even if your emotions aren't really there. Because isn't it true, the warm fuzzies, they can go away. You have them at times, and, and thank God for them. But what about those times that the warm fuzzies aren't there? Are you just going to not do anything? Is it just going to be cold? Maybe you should initiate something. Maybe you should stop by the store. when you, it did, the, the thought popped in your head, Pastor Rob said I should try this. Well, try it. Sometime when you are not thinking and you, she's not expecting it and you don't even feel like it, just do it. And then watch what happens when you see your bride, when you show up with flowers or uh, a 14 karat diamond ring, ooh, ooh. or you drive up in that Escalade. Honey, Merry Christmas. You know, do something. It doesn't have to be that big, of course, but I'm sure your wife would love it. Um, but deliberate. Do you, you get my point? That's kind of like the way we need to prepare our heart. It's it's a deliberate thing. Amen. And so that's really what we're doing now. Let's prepare our hearts as we, uh, as we lead uh, as another song of worship. What I'd like for you to do is just as Sarah and I are singing this song, just come on up and grab the elements. Uh, it's just one thing; it's all encapsulated. You got two different. Uh, for those of you who are new here and you don't know these newfangled uh, contraptions, there's a little tab on top where the the wafer is, and you got to pull the other one off after that to get to the juice. Okay, so just bring those back to your. Uh, cheers, and then we'll take it together, okay? Lord, we thank you. Lord, that of all the things that you could have done, Lord, when you saw Adam and Eve in the garden compromised, Lord, you could have just started all over again. But Lord, instead, you made coats and you clothed them with an animal that had to be sacrificed, Lord. A blood was shed that they might be covered. And, Lord, we think about that and we see in it, Lord, the type of, of what you have done for us. Lord, your, you, your life, you, your, your blood was shed. Your body was broken, Lord, to pay the penalty, Lord, for our sin, nearly 2,000 years ago, and Lord, that blood is still at work today, cleansing and healing us, and Lord, as you partook of that dinner the night before your arrest, and Lord, you took the bread, and you broke it and said, this is my body that's broken for you take it and eat it and so Lord like the disciples we do that now let's partake of the bread and after the bread he passed around the the cup and he said this is the blood of the new covenant drink all of it and do this as often as you will in remembrance of me so let's partake. And as we take communion, as we take these elements, really, what—if you think of it—the the juice and the 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 wine, or whatever, it's, the, symbol, the symbol of his blood and his body—it's going down to the innermost part of us. It, it's, it's a it's a it's a token. It's not. He was sacrificed once. We don't sacrifice him again. And just as that night when they took the bread, they did the same thing. Before Jesus had even gone to the cross, that's even more profound. But he did all of this for you and I. And so uh, let's stand together and uh, we're going to sing one more song. His blood is enough. Amen. Lord, you are more than enough for us, and uh, we're just so thankful tonight, Lord. Encourage our hearts, Lord, as we just consider these things, and, and uh, Lord, just uh, open our hearts, Lord, tonight, and, and bless our day tomorrow, Lord. We love you, and we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Have a blessed night. God bless you.